All right, please take your Bibles this evening and turn to Luke 22. Today we walk through a day of trial, a day when the darkness of this world and above this world is loose to pour out its rage against our Savior Jesus Christ. Over the next two weeks, we're going to observe two different reactions to the trials at hand. This week, I call the day of fear. Next week, I call the day of failure. This week, the day when Jesus is confronted, arrested. Next week, the aftermath, the reaction of the disciples. This week, the reaction of our Lord, who had been praying, preparing his heart, as we talked about last week in the Garden of Gethsemane to drink the cup that the Lord had laid before him. Next week, we consider the disciples who are experiencing the same circumstances but not having prayed, not having prepared their heart, not having readied themselves as such, will find the temptation to bring about failure. Jesus did spend his last hours. He has spent his last hours, as we step into the text this evening, fervently praying, watching in prayer. He is spiritually prepared for the temptation that is to come. And we're going to, through this time, remind ourselves of some principles about the world that is around us and some reminders in in light of that to help us along the way. We pick up in verse 47 this evening, where the Bible says this, And while he, that would be Jesus, yet spake, behold a multitude, and he that was called Judas, one of the twelve, went before them and drew near unto Jesus to kiss him. Jesus is in the midst of speaking to his disciples, we recall from last week, about prayer and temptation. Watch and pray, lest ye fall into temptation. When a multitude comes up to the Garden of Gethsemane, uh, uh, near or on the Mount of Olives, with this multitude was Judas Iscariot, called here one of the twelve. At the head of the mob was one who was close to Jesus. We're going to talk in our application about this this evening that it is often those that are closest to us that can hurt us the most because we are most vulnerable to them. It will not be, as we think about this idea, it's not intended to be a nihilistic idea, a pessimistic idea. Nihilism meaning that life has no meaning. It's not intended to be an idea where we say, uh, because people are going to hurt you, you should just stay at arm's length or something. But we, we understand from life that if we live long enough, People that are close to us are going to fail, and we will, we, we, we will receive pain from those who are around us, because people fail, because people disagree, because people are people. We'll talk more about that in a little bit. So Judas is at the head of this crowd, and he draws near to Jesus, and he kisses him. This was a common greeting in the day and culture. It's a common for many cultures around the world, but it was a greeting of, of intimacy and closeness. And of this kiss, Jesus responds in verse 48, Judas, betrayest thou the Son of Man with a kiss? We don't get much insight into this from the Luke passage, but Matthew gives us 
um, a little bit more clarity. In Matthew 26, verses 47 and 48, the Bible says this, And while he yet spake, lo, Judas, one of the twelve, came, and with him a great multitude with swords and staves from the chief priests and elders of the people. Now he that betrayed him gave him a sign, saying, Whomsoever I shall kiss, the same as he, hold him fast. We find that this multitude was ready for a fight. They come with swords. They come with staves. This is a, a mob. A stave being a long, narrow piece of wood suitable for fighting. And we find as well that this kiss Judas gave was exactly what Jesus said. It was the point of betrayal. It was the act of betraying Jesus into the hands of this mob. And it's interesting as we consider Jesus' warning here. He says that once he kissed him, they would know that this is him, that they should hold him fast. It would appear that the mob was expecting some sort of resistance here. So it is that Jesus is betrayed with a kiss, betrayed by one of those who was closest to him, and worse yet, betrayed through a sign of loyalty and affection. Verses 49 and 50. When they which were about him saw... What would follow? They said unto him, Lord, shall we smite with the sword? And one of them smote the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. So upon the declaration of intent to take Jesus, the disciples, uh, probably not Peter, because Peter's already busy chopping off someone's ear, and some of the other disciples perhaps said, Lord, is this the time to fight? Should we fight for you? Should we smite with the sword? Remember, they had had two swords with them, right? And, and so should we, should we bring out the sword? Should we get going here? Just before the time of prayer, back in verse 36, Jesus had exhorted them to take swords. They were thinking, uh, undoubtedly at that time, prepare for a fight. That's not what Jesus was saying. Jesus was saying, you're going to be traveling, you're going to have families, you need to defend yourself. Uh, that sort of an idea. But they were thinking, it's time to fight for our king. It's time to fight for the kingdom. It was not only Judas, in other words, that had the impression that it was time to fight. Judas uh, brings this mob out with swords and with staves. Judas says, hold him fast once I've identified him, once I've betrayed him, once I've given him over to you. And yet all of the disciples, it would seem, or at least the contingency of the disciples, Peter being first and foremost, did feel as though when it's time for Jesus to be taken, they'll take him over my dead body type idea. So this is not necessarily unfounded that Judas would have prepared the mob for a fight because if the disciples who were clean, who were in Christ, had the idea that we're going to fight for the king, then certainly the, the one, the one who, who was not a follower of Christ, who was with Christ, but not of Christ, would be confused in that regard as well. So it is that we, we, we read, there we go, that one of them, and we know that this one is Peter. We don't know it from Luke, but we know it from John, John 18.10, that Simon Peter draws a sword and that the man whose right ear was cut off was a servant of the priest whose name was Malchus. Peter cuts the right ear off of this man. Now, as we continue in Luke, Jesus responds in verse 51, and Jesus answered and said, Suffer ye... Thus far, and he touched his right ear and healed him. Jesus looks at the group after them saying, Lord, should we smite with the sword? And Jesus says, no, suffer ye thus far. We know that Jesus was speaking to all of them because of this statement, suffer ye. Right? When we come across a ye or a your 
or you in our King James Bibles, the ye or the your or the you signifies that it is a second person plural pronoun, that uh, the person is speaking to multiple people. When we see a thee, a thou, or a thy in our King James translation, we know that it's a second person singular pronoun, that the that person speaking to only one other person or, uh, or one entity. Uh, we've seen churches before where uh, the uh, a apostle speaks to the church in a thy, uh, kind of regarding them as one entity, but it's a singular pronoun. And so in this case, we know that, that Jesus is speaking to all of his disciples, suffer ye thus far, simply saying, no, allow them to take me, allow what is going to happen to happen. Then the Bible says, Jesus touched the man's ear and healed him. We find several other things about what Jesus said, depending on the gospel that we go to. Again, I'll reference you to Matthew 26 this evening, where in verses 52 through 54, we read this. Then said Jesus unto him, this would be Peter, put up again thy sword. Notice now he's only speaking to Peter. We know that because he's saying thy, not your. Put up again thy sword into his place, for all they that take the sword shall perish with the sword. Thinkest thou that I cannot pray uh, now pray to my father, and he shall presently give me more than twelve legions of angels? But how then shall the scriptures be fulfilled, that thus it must be? The words are spoken directly to Peter, as we mentioned. Jesus tells Peter to put his sword away, that they, take, that, they that take the sword shall die by the sword. The idea here is that force is met with force. If we meet them with force, they will meet us with force. And this is not Jesus' objective. Jesus did not come with force. There's coming a day where Jesus will come with force, but not today. All throughout the Bible, we find that God does not use force to compel action. He only uses force to judge. God compels actions by faith, God then judges, judgment being naturally, by force. To this end, he asks Peter, Do you not think that I could pray to my father and that he would presently send more than 12 legions of angels if I needed them? Force is not an issue with God. Numbers are not an issue with God. Logistics are not an issue with God. This is not the problem. Jesus doesn't need his disciples to defend him. He's chosen his disciples. He's chosen to use his disciples, but he doesn't need them to defend him. A legion uh, in, in Roman history is anywhere from three to 5,000 men, depending on the point in history. So 12 legions obviously would be 12 times three to 5,000. And he, of course, he says more than 12 legions. He can get the, the numbers he needs if he needed to fight. But that is not his purpose. That is not the point. That's not what's going on here. Indeed, Jesus had already told them, and we studied this some time ago, that his kingdom would not come through physical might. His kingdom would not come through an overthrow. He, we, uh, we recall back in Luke chapter 17, verse 20, Jesus had said, the kingdom of God cometh not with observation. Right? And we recognized when we were there, and we've mentioned it a couple of times since, the idea being that you're not going to see the kingdom of God develop. The rulers of this world are not going to be looking one day at a chart of the world and they're going to say, well, uh, Jesus has this portion of the world and that portion of the world and his, his troops are encroaching on us over here and we need to 
bolster our flanks so that he can't flank us. No, that's not going to happen when Jesus is ready. When Jesus is ready to rule, he's going to come, he's going to say a few words, and he's in charge. The kingdom is not going to come with observation. So the disciples are still struggling with this idea. They haven't quite gotten it yet, but Jesus is is staying on target. He's, he's sticking to the plan. No, I don't need your swords. I don't need your sword, Peter. Put it away. That's not what we're doing here. He says, the scriptures must be fulfilled. This must happen. The scriptures must be fulfilled. We see a similar statement to Peter in John 18, verse 11. Jesus says to Peter, put up, the, put up thy sword into the sheath. The cup which my Father hath given me, shall I not drink it? We mentioned this last week as an understanding that Jesus did not drink the cup in the garden. He has yet to drink the cup. He has to still drink the cup. He's telling Peter there is a purpose here. There is a purpose at work. And the purpose is not to bring about a kingdom by force. It never has been. That's not what God asked his disciples to do then. That's not what God asks his disciples to do now. We are not an army of a fighting force for Christ in the physical sense. The weapons of our warfare are not carnal. So Jesus acknowledges the necessity of the trials that were about to take place, and he's ready for them. And he prepared himself for them through the prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. Verses 52 and 53. Then Jesus said unto the chief priests, and captains of the temple, and the elders which were come to him. Be ye come out as against a thief with swords and staves? When I was daily with you in the temple, you stretched forth no hands against me. But this is your hour and the power of darkness. Jesus asks him, why are you coming in a mob setting with swords and staves? I was with you daily. I never fought against you. You could have come at that time. I was daily among you. I was no physical threat. I've never been a physical threat to you. I've never sought to take up arms. You've never heard me say anything that would even imply that I'm going to take up arms. Yet you come to me as if I'm a thief. You come at me for a battle. But Jesus says, it's understandable. It's your time. It's your hour. It's the hour of the power of darkness. It's the hour when the serpent will bruise the heel of the seed. So it must be that all must come to pass. And take note the authority with which Jesus is speaking here. The confidence that though these things are happening, nothing is out of control. It is as it needs to be. Thank God for this. Thank God for an example of Jesus who recognizes that even when things aren't going right, it doesn't mean that they're outside of God's control because he's doing what God has asked him to do. I really love John's account of the authority of Jesus in this moment. We'll go back in time a little bit in John to John chapter 18, verses 4 through 9, where the Bible says this Jesus, therefore, knowing all things that should come upon him, went forth and said unto them, Whom seek ye? Speaking to the crowd, they answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said unto them, I am. He, we see here, I am he, he is in italics, right? I am is what he said. He didn't say I am he, he said ego and me, I am, the same thing that God said to Moses at the burning bush, I am that I am. And, and by the way, that burning bush, that was the angel of the Lord, that is Jesus there as well. So he says, I am, 
And the Bible says, and Judas also, which betrayed him, stood with them. As soon then as he said unto them, I am he, in italics, they went backward and fell to the ground. Literally, when he said, I am, they fell to the ground. Now, the Bible doesn't say fear. The Bible doesn't say these things. I don't know what it was, but to me, it sounds like authority. That's what it sounds like to me. That's just, that's, that's Pastor Wickler's interpretation of events as they stand. We recognize uh, uh, that it, it, it could be this, it could be that. But he says, I am, and they walk backward and they fall to the ground. Then asked he them again, whom seek ye? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I have told you that I am, in italics he, if therefore ye seek me, let these go their way, that the saying might be fulfilled which he spake, of them which thou gavest me, I have lost none. Pretty important statement there. Jesus, is, uh, he prays that prayer in John 17, saying that, of those that you gave me, I have lost none save the son of perdition. Many people interpret that to mean that, that, that Judas was there at one point, but he was lost. Except that in our interpretation here, we see that of those you have given me, I have lost none is not a spiritual statement. It's a physical statement. None of the disciples have, have been lost physically. That's why Jesus is saying, let them go. Because Jesus is seeking to preserve them, their well-being, their state, to the extent where Judas will be lost physically. He will die. He will kill himself. The rest of them are not lost. Jesus is yielding to the will of God here. And we see that great statement of authority, I am, mentioned three times. Great authority, even in these moments. That's the extent of our exposition this evening. Did not take long. But that's good because I want to park a little bit more on application. The application this evening uh, is going to be very pointed. And again, I don't want it to sound depressing or frustrating. I hope it's not so. I hope it's, uh, you'll take it within the spirit that it's given. But let's talk through a few points. I believe I have four this evening. And point number one of our application as we consider Jesus' arrest is this. People will fail you, but God cannot fail. I make this point in relation to Judas Iscariot and our Lord Jesus Christ. Let me be careful to acknowledge that the relationship between Jesus and Judas was somewhat unique in nature and in circumstance. Judas's heart was compelled by the enemy, as we know, to do this thing, to betray Jesus, because it was the time of the power of darkness to arise and to slay the King of glory. I acknowledge this uniqueness that Satan had filled his heart to do this thing. But I still want to take a moment and link Judas's actions and interactions to our own lives. Jesus here was betrayed by a kiss from one of his closest followers, one of his 12. Betrayed by a kiss from a man who just hours earlier heard Jesus say, with desire have I desired to eat this Passover with you. Judas's betrayal was not for lack of Jesus' love and care toward him. Judas's betrayal was entirely a Judas problem. There are some among us who have been hurt deeply. Some by ones that they love. You did not ask to be hurt. You had done nothing worthy of such treatment. And yet, what you received is poor treatment nonetheless. 
If you are blessed by God to live a full life, you'll likely face hurt at some point at the hands of someone that you love. Maybe more, maybe less. I'm not saying immediate family or closest of friends, but at some point you'll likely be hurt. And as life is structured, as I mentioned before, the likelihood of being hurt actually increases as you let people in. Those that are closest to you are those unto whom you're most vulnerable. Those that are closest to you can hurt you the most. It's just the nature of relationships. The deepest hurts in your life, God forbid that you should experience anything like that, but the deepest hurts in people's lives come at the hands of those who love them or who they love the most. Now again, as I say this, I'm not trying to be pessimistic. I'm not saying that those who you love in this life are going to hurt you, that if you live for long enough, everyone will fail you. I'm not saying those things. I'm not trying to say those things. But people are people. People do fail. And there are plenty of examples, even among us, this smaller subset of our larger Legacy Baptist Church, who have experienced pain at the hands of those whom they've loved. For some, however, things are much worse than perhaps what any of us have experienced. For some, those that are actually closest to you have deeply hurt you. So that you can't even express the sorrow and the pain. How do you move on from such hurts? How do you deal with such hurts? What do you do when those that are closest to you hurt you? David gives us good insight into this question in Psalm 20. He says this, To the chief musician, a psalm of David, The Lord hear thee in the day of trouble. The name of the God of Jacob defend thee. Send thee help from the sanctuary and strengthen thee out of Zion. Remember all thy offerings and accept thy burnt sacrifice. Selah. Grant thee according to thine own wisdom and fulfill all thy counsel. We will rejoice in thy salvation. In the name of our God will we set up our banners. The Lord fulfill all thy petitions. Now know I that the Lord saveth his anointed. He will hear him from his holy heaven with the saving strength of his right hand. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we will remember the name of the Lord our God. They are brought down and fallen, but we are risen and stand upright. Save, Lord. Let the king hear us when we call. If you trust in people, if your hope is in people, if your anchor is a person, if your happiness and your peace and your joy and your emotional center is anchored upon people or upon institutions, you have anchored your foundation upon something that can fail. If you trust in the institution of government, and that's your anchor, if you trust in the institution of the church, and that is your anchor. If your happiness and your peace and your joy and your emotional center is anchored upon an institution, even the family, those things can fail. And when I speak of these things, it's evident around us, I, I hope that you've never experienced those things in your own life. 
But you see people. Perhaps a man, he has a good life. He has a, a wife and a family and he has a job and things are going fine and he has his house and he has his cars and he has those things. But he's anchored to those things. His happiness and his joy and his peace are rooted in those things. And then there comes a point where something happens. His marriage fails. His job fails. His health fails. They, one of his children passes away. And the man breaks. He never recovers. He crumbles. His life derails and he's never the same. Many will say, well, he, he just, he was one of the ones. He lost the, the lottery of life. No man could sustain in such a situation. But maybe the problem is that the things in his life were his anchor rather than Christ. And so when the anchor failed, he was cast adrift. So a couple lives 25 years in marriage and they have children and those children are now grown and they leave the house and all of a sudden those two, that couple finds that they have nothing to relate to anymore. And the marriage breaks up. Because throughout those years, at some point, if not from the beginning, the anchor of that marriage had become their children or had become their busyness. And when that anchor went away or that anchor failed, so too failed their marriage. So a pastor serves in a church and that church isn't growing. Or a member betrays him or hurts the other members of the church. The church has a falling out and there's a split. And the minister loses focus and he fails. He can no longer minister. He becomes a shell of a man. He is depressed. He, he loses the capacity to move on. What happened? Well, it's possible that that pastor's anchor was actually in the church itself. And when the church failed in whatever way it failed, his anchor failed. And he was cast adrift. A church member serves the church faithfully, loves the church, trusts the church, until one day it proves that the church was untrustworthy. Something in the church goes very wrong. There's a financial scandal. Somebody was taking money from the church. A religious scandal. Uh, the church has begun to compromise. Maybe a moral scandal. The pastor has failed morally. And that person leaves the church, becomes one of those spiritual but not religious person, lives in resentment and bitterness against the church. What happened? His anchor was in the church. And when the church failed, his anchor failed, and he was cast adrift. We could spend all day on scenarios. Perhaps you've known some. Perhaps you've seen some. Perhaps you've experienced some scenarios. When our emotions and our hopes and our expectations are rooted in people and institutions in this life, there is a constant possibility that when the institution fails, when the person fails, so too will fail our resolve, our capacity to function because it failed. When we see that, what we know is that our anchor was in the wrong place. But David writes about a day of trouble. And in that day of trouble, he says, some trust in chariots and some in horses, 
but we will remember the name of the Lord our God. Now, again, what am I not saying this evening? I am not saying don't trust anyone. It's a pretty sad life if you go through life not trusting people. As a matter of fact, um, the idea of being a lone wolf, of keeping everyone at an arm's distance, of not letting anyone in, I've noticed, uh, and, and, and please, this is not me attacking culture or anything, but I've noticed up here the German-Scandinavian culture, people are far more private than, say, where my wife and I lived before in the South. Um, there's a, there's a, an entirely different level of, of privacy and leave-me-aloneness uh, up here. And it's, it, it, and it's not to say that, you know, Minnesota nice is Minnesota nice. It is what it is. It's fine. It's good. But there's a different level up here of you do your thing, I do my thing. I'm going to let you in, but I'm going to keep you at arm's length. There, there is some of that up here culturally. I'm not necessarily saying in the church. I'm just saying culturally. I'm not advocating for that. I believe in many ways that that is explicitly anti-biblical, incompatible with the Christian expectation of fellowship, accountability, and love in the church. I'm, I'm not trying to say that because institutions can fail and people can fail and families can fail that we just throw it all out and say, okay, well, I'm just going to trust in myself and, and, and I'm not going to ever trust in anyone else and I'm not going to ever let anyone in because everyone I've known that I've let in has failed me. People get there. Certainly, that's not what we're advocating this evening. Quite the opposite, in fact. But what I am saying is that while you should and can and ought to trust people, while you should and can and ought to invest, while you should and can and ought to love the institution of the church, love the institution of family, understand, honor, respect the institution of government, while you should trust your wife, while you should trust your family, while you should trust your husband, while you should trust your parents, while you should have those relationships in place and love them and invest in them fully and wholly as unto the Lord, they should not be your anchor in life. They cannot be your anchor in life. They cannot be the thing that defines you. They cannot be the thing that keeps you grounded. I love my wife. I trust my wife. I have absolutely no expectation that my wife would ever knowingly hurt me. But if I make my wife my anchor in this life, first, I do my wife a disservice because I'm asking her to bear a burden that no one should have to bear. I should not have to bear the burden of being anyone's anchor. And a lot of pastors get themselves into trouble because they bear that burden or they feel like they have to. They have a problem. They are not perfect. No pastor is. And instead of seeking accountability, talking with individuals in the church, men that they trust about things, they say, I have to be the anchor for my church. And they begin to live in hypocrisy, living something that they aren't in order to try to be something that, they've never, that they never should have to be, which is the actual anchor for other people's emotional stability. So that if you read about any time a pastor fails, any time a church fails, there is without fail collateral damage. Other people falter in their emotional, spiritual lives when pastors fail. When, and and it's, it's natural, it's understandable. Pastors, when they fail, churches, when they fail, institutions, when they fail, families, when they fail, it alienates people. That is natural. But it's only natural because people place their anchors 
on things that can fail. Again, I'm not saying don't trust. I'm not saying don't love. I'm not saying don't invest. But I'm asking you, where are your anchors in this life? 2 Timothy 2, verse 13 tells us that God cannot deny himself. The point is this. If we anchor ourselves in God himself, if we anchor our hope in God, if we anchor our expectation in God, it does not mean that people can't hurt us, that people won't hurt us. It does not mean that people can't cause us sorrow and pain. It does not mean that people can't ruin our days or our years, that they can't tear us down. It does not mean that necessarily even that the pain is going to be lessened when someone does fail in our lives. But what it does mean is that their actions, their decisions, their interactions with me, whether it be a person or an institution, that when somebody does fail around me, when somebody does hurt me, when someone fails me, I won't fail. I won't be cast adrift because while I love them and while they hurt me and while that will cause pain and sorrow and while it may, may mean many sleepless nights and it may mean many tears and it may mean an entire uh, re rethinking of, of my life and my position and where I am and what I'm doing and what it means for me, what it won't mean is I will not become adrift and aimless and without bearing because my rock never left. My center never left. The things around me, the things I loved, the things I cherished, the things I, I enjoyed, the things that I invested in, those things might crumble, those things might fall, but my anchor holds because my anchor is the one who cannot fail. No person or event in this life can cause your life to crumble if your life is not founded upon something that can crumble. If you've ever read the accounts of the believers who were in the Nazi concentration camps or perhaps the um, Soviet gulags in the days of Soviet massacres or even the Chinese, um, the Chinese death camps in the days of the Cultural Revolution of, of the communist overthrow of, of um, Mao Zedong. You read of an enduring faith and a capacity to overcome you read of missionaries and the things they endured on the mission field and the suffering they went through, and you ask the question, how is it that they could be in such despair and such suffering and how they could endure? But the question actually has a very simple answer. It's not necessarily a simple concept uh, that to, to enact in our lives, but the answer itself is simple. It's because their rock was Christ. And no matter what they went through, no matter the circumstances, no matter whether it was their family even that betrayed them into the hands of evil people to be, to be beaten and to be torn and to be bruised, their rock was Christ. And that never faltered. It cannot falter. So David writes in Psalm 56, 11, In God have I put my trust. I will not be afraid what man can do unto me. So David writes in Psalm 118.6, The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do unto me? What can man do unto you if God is on your side? It's about a mindset. And may I just say this? 
Sometimes we don't even know where all of these confidences lie until we're tested. Sometimes I don't know just how much I have invested in someone or I have placed my hope on someone until it crumbles underneath me. That's okay. That's because we are all so terribly human. And that's just the way it is. But if we can take an audit of our lives and as best we can, as best we know how, stand on the rock that is Christ. And then when things crumble underneath us, maybe we'll find out we weren't standing quite as much on him as we thought. But God gives us the grace to flee to him. That as the waters rise, we can climb the rock higher. But the best we know how, we must seek with all of our hearts to have our life rooted on the God that cannot fail. That's the point here. God cannot fail. If all of my expectation, all of my hope, all of my desire, all of my joy is rooted in God, God will not fail. God cannot fail you. He cannot fail you. My soul, wait thou only upon God, for my expectation is from Him. He only is my rock and my salvation, the psalmist wrote. Is that you this evening? I'm not desiring that you'll walk away from here a renewed pessimist, looking around and just waiting. Okay, when's my wife going to fail me? Okay, when's my husband going to fail me? Okay, when is my family going to crumble underneath me? Okay, when, when are things going to fall apart? No. But, ready for the day where, where it could happen. Ready for the day when, when the institutions that you love and that you trust might fail. Ready for the day when the people you love and you trust might fail, not because they're evil implicitly, but because they're human. What is your anchor? Where is your anchor? Will it hold in the day of trial? Is it on the solid rock? Second point. Always remember God doesn't need our help, but he does choose our service. Jesus was preparing his disciples for service. He was not preparing them to fight for him, physically speaking. The crowd of religious leaders came with swords and staves to take Jesus. Peter, in some misguided line of thought, decided he was going to help Jesus defend himself, to deliver Jesus from this persecution. So he cuts off Malchus's ear. Jesus, Jesus immediately intervenes and not only tells Peter to stop, but he heals Malchus's ear. Wonder what Malchus was thinking. It's interesting. You would think that maybe, I, I, I th <laughs> obviously, the, the hour of darkness had come. Darkness was prevailing. Darkness was per pursuing this. But I would think that there would be more power in Jesus saying stop and putting a man's ear back on him than there would be in Peter and whoever else had the second sword actually fighting against these other people with swords and staves. I would think that that crowd would say, wow, maybe we shouldn't oppose this guy who just popped this guy's ear back on him. But darkness had blinded their hearts, and we'll see that particularly in the next, not next week, but the week after, how deeply darkness had blinded the hearts of these people. Jesus has shown his authority. People have recognized it. Jesus says if it was the Father's will, more than 12 legions of angels could come to his deliverance. And as I think about this idea, the 12 legions of angels that Jesus could call plus, I'm reminded of Elisha, the prophet Elisha in 2 Kings 6. 2 Kings 6, the king of Syria, comes after Elisha the prophet with his armies because Elisha the prophet had been telling the kings of Israel how to fight. 
He'd been telling him, no, don't go there. There's a trap for you there. No, don't do that. The king of Syria wants to destroy you there. And, and the king of Syria was very angry because he thought that there was a traitor in their midst. He was convinced that there was a spy until one of his servants said in 2 Kings 12, uh, chapter 6, verse 12, one of his servants said, none, my Lord, there is no spy in your midst. But Elisha, the prophet that is in Israel, telleth the king of Israel the words that thou speakest in thy bedchamber. There's no spy except the God of heaven. Once again, you'd think that if, if, if the God of heaven was talking to Elisha and the king of Syria believed this, he might say, well, then I'm going to back off. But that's, that wasn't his response. Unbelief needs no reason. Un unbelief is a very unreasonable thing. We're gonna, I'm looking forward to talking about that with you in two weeks. The king of Syria says, well, then we need to kill this Elisha guy. I mean, after all, he literally knows what I'm thinking in my bedchamber. I can kill him, right? Anyway, so in 2 Kings chapter 6, verses 13 through 17, we read this. And he said, go and spy where he is. Find out where this king, where, where Elisha, this prophet is, that I may send and fetch him. And it was told him, saying, Behold, he is in Dothan. Therefore sent he thither horses and chariots and a great host. He sends the army to go pick up this prophet, right? I'm going to go pick up this prophet with my armies. And they came by night and compassed the city about. So they have surrounded Dothan with chariots and horses and armies. And when the servant of the man of God was risen early, he'd gone forth, he gets up, he goes out the, the door, and there are all these armies surrounding the city. Bible says, And behold, an host compassed the city both with horses and with chariots. And his servant said unto him, that would be unto Elisha, Alas, my master, how shall we do? And he answered, Fear not, for they that be with us are more than they that be with them. Interesting response, right? No, there's more with us than with them. The servant looks around and he sees an entire city surrounded by chariots and horses. He's a little confused. The Bible says, And Elisha prayed and said, Lord, I pray thee, open his eyes that he may see. Open the eyes of his servant. And the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire round about Elisha. Elisha understood something here. Elisha understood that people and institutions and those that would seek us harm, they exist. They absolutely exist. He understood that the battles that were being fought on this plane, I mean, materially, Elisha was alive. He was a person. His heart was beating. He could die. But the point is that Elisha had no fear of what man could do unto him because he was under the watch care of the great God. It's really actually interesting. If, if you want to continue to read at some point, I, I, I encourage you, if you're not familiar with the story, continue to read about what happened here. It's, very, it's almost comical um, how, how this ends up playing out. Elisha's servant asks, what will we do? We are surrounded. When Elisha responds, what will they do? They are surrounded. So often we Christians live as if God needs us. We think that if we miss something or do something or fail in some way, that that will be the end of it. We live as if our jobs and our money, men, we live as if our jobs and our money is actually the thing that's providing for our families. 
parents. You live as if your parenting is actually the thing that forms well-adjusted Christian adults. Pastors, we live as if our pastoring is actually what is going to make or break the success of a church. Christians live as, we, we, we give the gospel as if it's actually our words that are going to win people to Christ. Now, I'm not saying those things are not important. Men, we ought to diligently work. This is how God has ordained that we provide for our families. Money is generally speaking a big part of how God has ordained that we provide for our families. Parents, it is important to be godly parents, to raise godly children, to be consistent examples. These are important things. These are necessary things. This is how God works. As a pastor, it's important that I be faithful in ministry. It's important that we as believers share the gospel to a lost and dying world. But none of those things are actually about us. I cannot pull out a piece of paper, write a list of things that I did well, and things that I didn't do well in any area of life, and then say, therefore, I can predict with 100% clarity the outcome because one outweighed the other. Spiritual outcomes are not simply about me. I'm a partner with God and with His will. And anything that I do of value or success is done as God has compelled me to do it as I partner with Him. Anything that happens of value is only done because I have identified things that God has asked me to do and I've done them because God has chosen to use me. Any success that Legacy Baptist Church finds is only the success of of God. And to whatever degree God has chosen to use Pastor Wickler as a vessel to bring that about is the degree to which God chose to use Pastor Wickler. But it might very well be that in a week or in a month or in six months, there will be a family that comes to this church that turns this church upside down for Christ. And if God chooses to use an individual or a family outside of Pastor Wickler, that's God's business. That's how God works. We our vessels in the hand of the master. He doesn't need our help, but he does choose to use us. Are you usable then? That's the real question. Not are you the best, the brightest, the strongest, the fastest, the smartest. Are you usable? The spirit of God, Jesus said in John 3, is like a wind that comes from a direction and blows a direction and we don't know where he's coming from and we don't know where he's going, but he's moving. And if we are blessed by God, we find ourselves in the path of that wind. And we might even get to be a sail directed by that wind unto power, unto purpose, unto ministry. We have a part But our part is only as good as the degree to which we are aligned with God's desire to use us. He doesn't need our help. I don't need to bear the burden of this ministry. I can't bear the burden of this ministry. And if I try, if I think that God needs me to propel Legacy Baptist Church, I'm going to burn out and the church is not going to be everything that it could be for Christ. Same with our families. Same with our jobs. We are partnering with God to do what he's asked us to do. But the chariots are filled, or the the hills are filled with chariots of fire. The power is of God. And we have a privilege of being a part of it. 
Let us be careful that we're not so eager to do that we fail to do as, to partner with God in what we're doing. Yeah, I put it that way. Point number three. Don't fear God's will. Peter cuts off Malchus's ear. Jesus tells him in John 18, put up thy sword in thy sheath. The cup which my father hath given me, shall I not drink it? Jesus had spent much time in prayer. He'd been strengthened by the angels to do the will of the Father. And now as he stood before the mob facing the darkness that, w- that was to come, facing the wrath of, uh, of, of the, the spiritual darkness of this world, he resisted any urge to allow Peter to defend him and instead submitted himself to the will of the Father. He submitted himself to death, not because it was noble, though it was. He submitted himself to death, not because it was right, whatever we might define that is, though it was. He submitted himself to death because it is what God wanted. It was God's will. And if it was God's will, then Jesus knew one thing above all. He was not going to fear it, oppose it, or flee from it. The mindset we consider here is one which we see exemplified in the struggles of Paul the Apostle. Paul was a man who was ordained unto suffering. Indeed, in the book of Acts, as we spoke of this morning, at the call of Saul to become a servant of the Lord, God tells Ananias in Acts 9.16, for I will show him how great things he must suffer for my name's sake. Paul was ordained unto suffering. It was not always easy for him. He was a very talented man. He was a very powerful man. He was a very academic man. He could put phrases together well. And Paul says this in 2 Corinthians 12, verses 7 and 8, Lest I should be exalted above measure through the abundance of the revelations, there was given to me a thorn in the flesh, the messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I should be exalted above measure. For this thing I besought the Lord thrice, that it might depart from me. As Paul was speaking about his life and his capabilities and his desires, he was a man that was so capable that there was a propensity, there, there is a propensity in the lives of capable people to glory in themselves, to glory in their abilities, and then to seek to use their abilities to, 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 to push ahead God's agenda, right? This is the idea of, of God needs me. It may not be in the forefront of our minds, but even subconsciously, we just feel like I've got a talent and I'm going to force this talent. I'm going to force the kingdom of God in my direction through my talents. And Paul says, lest I be exalted above measure, God gave to me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger, the messenger of Satan. And notice he pinpointed why God did it, so that he would stay humble. God did it so that he would stay humble. And three times Paul asked God, in the same way that we might experience Jesus falling on his knees and saying, Lord, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done. Paul asked three times that this thorn in the flesh might be removed from him. God, I get it. You want to keep me humble? Would you just please remove this thing? And God responded to Paul. You're probably familiar with it in verse 9 of 2 Corinthians 12. 
And he said unto me, My grace is sufficient for thee, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Notice Paul's response. Most gladly, therefore, will I rather glory in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. God's response when combined with Paul's introduction tells us this. God allowed this thorn in the flesh as a means of keeping Paul humble, lest Paul be exalted by the power and the authority that he had as an apostle of Jesus Christ, the apostle to the Gentiles, lest Paul be exalted by the abilities that he had been given naturally in his intelligence, lest he be exalted by the success that he had as he went from place to place planting churches and seeing people saved. God allowed him to have a thorn in the flesh, a means by which God divinely chose to keep Paul grounded. And once Paul understood in its fullness that this was God's will, Paul's attitude changed entirely toward this thorn in the flesh, didn't it? I'm sure he never woke up saying, I'm glad I have this thing. But I would imagine in my sanctified imagination that Paul often woke up and said, God, thank you for this thing. Most gladly, therefore, Paul says, I will rather glory in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. If it is the power of Christ or the thorn in the flesh, I'll take the power of Christ with the thorn in the flesh every day, any day. He did not fear what God had asked him to bear because he had confidence that God had asked, it was God that asked him to bear it. Would to God that we would be the same. Would to God that when we are asked to bear whatever it is, if we know it is the will of the Lord, that we will not fear it, that we will not resent it, that we will not reject it, knowing that it is through God's will that God has his power worked out in me. Life may not be what you'd want it to be right now. Circumstances aren't what you had envisioned. Things are hard. You're tired. You're weary. Maybe someone's hurt you. Maybe it is that you just aren't, you wanted to be there and you're here and there's no way to get to there and you want to be there. But you're here and you know that this is where God wants you to be. It's just not where you want to be. Do you have the faith to trust God's will? Do you have the faith to trust that if God has you somewhere, then it's where it's best for you? Do you have the faith to pray and ask, Lord, thy will be done, even if you know thy will be done is not your will be done? We should say with Paul, I will glory in the Lord's will as long as I have confidence that it is him that wants me there. If you can get there, in your life, life will become not necessarily easier, but there will sure be a whole lot more joy along the way. Fourth and finally, we're going to talk about this more in a couple of weeks. In a culture of lies, truth is violence. Jesus stood across from a mob that was ready to fight him, and he said, Was I not with you in the temple? I'm no physical threat to you. He had incited no violence. He had preached no insurrection, but they came about against him as if he was a dangerous enemy. 
Paul once asked the believers in, in Galatia, in Galatians chapter 4, verse 6, am I therefore become your enemy because I tell you the truth? Jesus taught in John 15, verse 19, if you were of the world, the world would love his own, but because you are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hateth you. Verse 22, I had not, if I had not come and spoken unto them, they had not had sin, but now they have no cloak for their sin. Verse 25, but this cometh to pass, that the word might be fulfilled that is written in their law, they hated me without a cause. Jesus warned that the unbelieving world will hate you for a very specific reason, because you're not one of them. Because you're not one of them. They hated Jesus because of his words, because of his ideas, because of his righteous actions, not because he was a violent man, not because he was an evil man. They hated Jesus without cause. Jesus tells us that such is the legacy of the world in which we live. It is a world willing to tolerate almost anything and everything except truth. We see examples of this going all the way back to Cain and Abel. In 1 John chapter 3, verses 11 and 12, verses 11 through 13, excuse me, the Bible says this, For this is the message ye have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another, not as Cain, who was of that wicked one, and slew his brother, and wherefore slew he his brother? Because his own works were evil and his brother's righteous. Marvel not, my brethren, if the world hate you. Cain killed Abel, not because Abel had done wrong, but because Cain had done wrong and Abel had not. Cain killed Abel because Abel's works were righteous and Cain's works were evil. To this end, John says, don't be surprised when the world hates you for doing right. It's not for the evil that you do, it's for the good that you do that they call you evil. Your good works make the world feel guilty. And so they interpret the truth that you're preaching and the truth that you're living as violence against them. And they will. And they already are. We live in a time where this is a reality. Europe, if you've been following geopolitical events, Europe is culturally devastated right now. They are in a great deal of trouble. It's not just Europe, though. If you read about colleges all around this nation, young people are being taught that offensive speech is the same as physical violence and that offensive speech ought to be met with physical violence as resistance. Lest we roll our eyes and think, well, you know, those kids will one day grow up and realize that the world doesn't revolve around them. Um, Europe teaches us that this is not the case. A couple of weeks ago, the Scotland police posted this on their Twitter page. I don't know if you can read that. It says, disability, race, ethnicity, religion, belief, sexual orientation, transgender identity. These are all protected characteristics against hate crime. Targeting anyone because you think they are different to you is a, uh, is a crime. Be greater than, the, than a hater and fight hate crime. To say that a boy who thinks he is a girl is actually a boy is considered hate speech in Scotland and you can be arrested for it. And the police are warning people that if you do it, they are looking for you. If you say something on social media, they are looking for you. They will track you down. They, they've been threatening it for a couple of weeks now regularly on social media. To say that sodomy is sin without any statement against a particular sodomite is hate speech in the Western world, in, in Scotland, right now. In 2013, the Supreme Court in Canada upheld a conviction of a man who was passing around flyers that quoted the Bible and, and simply quoted what the Bible said about sodomy. 
They ruled that this action portrays sodomites as a menace that could threaten their safety and well-being. Therefore, this man had every right to be arrested because his words could make somebody think that this person is doing something that they don't like and they could then possibly engage against, in violence against the sodomite. So therefore, we need to arrest the man that might incite the person to incite violence against the sodomite. This is not very far off. All of those young people in universities around this country being convinced that offensive speech is hate speech are the next generation of cultural and political leaders in this country. To this end, the warnings of John 15 and 1 John 3 become very real to us. That there's coming a day where the mobs will surround those that speak the truth. They will come with their swords and their staves because they will interpret the truth as violence. In a culture of lies, truth will be understood as violence, as insurrection. Those who speak truth, those who live truth, will be met with violence and anger. Now, of course, this is all barring a revival, which can always happen. Praise God for that. I'm not trying... It sounds like a hopeless message. It's not supposed to be this evening. What are we called to do in a culture that, of lies that meets truth with violence. 1 Peter 2 gives us the answer. I'd encourage you to study the passage more. We will talk about it more again in two weeks. 1 Peter 2 says this, verses 13 through 15. Submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether it be to the king as supreme or unto governors as unto them that are sent for, uh, by him for the punishment of evildoers and for the praise of them that do well. For so is the will of God that with well-doing ye may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men. Verse 19, For this is thankworthy, if a man for conscience toward God endure grief, suffering wrongfully. For what glory is it if, when ye be buffeted for your faults, ye shall take it patiently? But if, when ye do well and suffer for it, ye take it patiently, this is acceptable with God. For even hereunto were ye called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that ye should follow in his steps, who did no sin, Neither was guile found in his mouth, who when he was reviled, reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not, but committed himself to him that judgeth righteously. Who his own self bare our sins in his own body on the tree, that we being dead to sins should live unto righteousness, by whose stripes ye were healed. For ye were as sheep going astray, but are now returned unto the shepherd and bishop of your souls. Peter appeals to the very night which we study today in order to tell us how we should act in the midst of persecution. That we are called by God in the presence of human authorities to always do well. That when they would cause us to suffer for that well-doing, we don't fight back. We do not revile those who would revile us. We endure the grief. This is the will of God concerning you. As Christ was reviled, he reviled not again. As Christ suffered, he threatened not. He suffered wrongfully for the sake of truth, and so too might we. It should not surprise us, brethren, in a culture of lies that truth would be considered violence. It should not surprise us, brethren, in a world of evil that truth would be hated. It is what the Bible teaches. It is what we should expect. On that night, Jesus, who was in the garden, not conspiring to overthrow the government, but rather praying for himself and his disciples. On that night, a mob met him with force, ready to fight. Jesus asked why, no man could tell him, such is the legacy of the culture of lies. These are all quite connected this evening, though uh, each point in and of itself is distinct. Because as we think of the failing of people and, and, and God not needing our help and not fearing God's will and recognizing uh, how culture goes, they, they all interplay one with another. 
if you're trusting God's will and if that's where your anchor rests, then you will never be overborne with the burden of God's will because you know that where God leads, he provides. You know that the chariots of fire surround you. If you're trusting God's will and you're anchored on that, then though people might fail and institutions might fail, God forbid they would, but when you are hurt, it's not going to cast you adrift because you know the God that is your anchor. If, you are, if your anchor is firm, you do not fear God's will, you're trusting and living in God's will, then on the day where the truth that we proclaim becomes violenced against a culture of lies, we can stand firm because we know where our hope rests. May God help us to learn from these principles in that day of fear, trusting that as Christ did, so too can we in this world. Thank you for listening to Pastor Jamin Wickler from Legacy Baptist Church in Buffalo, Minnesota. More information about Legacy Baptist Church and a library of sermons are available at www.legacybaptistchurch.net.